Hello and welcome to Full Contact Nerd, where we talk about fiction and storytelling in all its forms. From the weird to the fantastic, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, thrillers, mysteries, anything you can ask for, we have it. I'm Chris Alvarez, and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Jonathan Lethem, author of The Arrest, published by Echo, uh, today, November 10th, 2020. Thank you for speaking with me. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for having me on the show. Sure. So first, um, obviously, you, you have a lot of ideas rolling around in your head um, as a writer. How did this particular idea rise above the rest and, and get written? <laughs> That's a great way to describe it. Well, you know, usually I have been um, kind of sitting with a with an idea or or sometimes it's not an idea, but like an image for a for a book for a long time mm-hmm. before I I can even uh, consider starting it you know this is never a sudden procedure it's usually been a couple of years of kind of ruminating over something and letting other ideas attach to it like flypaper mm. and um this was one of those there are aspects of it that i think harken back to um stories or or ideas i've had in my head for decades really you know the 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 supercar the cross country cross post-apocalyptic country adventure uh, is uh, hardly my own invention. In a way, it's a response to an archetypal idea, you know, one that you meet in um, something like Cormac McCarthy's uh, The Road or mm-hmm. or um, Damnation Alley, uh, which was, a, I think, a, a Roger Zelazny story before it was turned into a, a George Papard movie mm-hmm. in the 70s. And, and and, you know, even the, the blue streak, which is what I call the supercar in my story, uh, was the name of a unique race car that was driven in a shaggy dog story that my father used to tell me and my brother <laughs> at bedtimes, serially. Mm-hmm. He would tell us about the continuing adventures of the blue streak. So there are all kinds of things in this that are, you know, not even really my own. They're more like archetypal uh, images that I'm kind of making my own, you know, turning into something more personal. And then, of course, the setting in Maine, you know, it's a place that's meant a lot to me and small towns in coastal Maine. I've been spending time uh, there for decades, but it's not ordinarily something I write about. I'm, I'm, I'm known for writing about California and New York City. And um, and so somehow making making my imprint on uh, on this space that I, that means a lot to me, uh, by, by turning it into the scene of one of these, um, one of my ridiculous, you know, comic dystopias, mm-hmm. uh, was, was really exciting for me. So there's something about the collision of this idea of a kind of widescreen, spectacular post-apocalyptic story with the very intimate pastoral image of the, the small town in Maine that's mainly characterized by the locavore culture and, you know, pretty pretty little islands off the coast. Something about the collision of scales, I think for me was the real source of interest in this story. Mm -hmm. So uh, tell me, tell me a bit about the, um, the protagonist, the setting and the conflict that we have. Yeah. Well, so I, you know, I live now, uh, on the edge of Los Angeles Mm -hmm. and I've never really been a, a citizen of LA as, uh, one envisions it from from an East Coast life, you know the the Hollywood sign, the beach cities, and and the 
the film industry. Mm-hmm. But like almost anyone who who grew up in 20th century culture, I'm also a product of that place. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. absorbing the culture of the film industry, loving and hating it all at once has been a life pursuit for me. And I've written about it in lots of different ways. I've translated my excitement for and revulsion of Hollywood product (laughs) into my fiction over and over again, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, I've also had now, you know, three decades into writing novels, I had my share of kind of weird glancing encounters, some of them very stimulating and some, some of them flattering and some of them very humiliating where Mm -hmm. people wanted to work with me or wanted to adapt one of my stories, uh, or novels into something. And so I have a kind of a longstanding tourist's curiosity uh, for the means of production, you know, the world of, of mm-hmm. film pitching and producers and all, all that glorious uh, claptrap that, um, <laughs> that, that goes on. And so the two, in a way, the two main characters of this story, the point of view character, Journeyman, and, and his abhorrent, charismatic, disastrous friend, mm-hmm. Todd Baum, are really archetypal figures from Hollywood. They're the the power producer, you know, the the mogul type who who makes stuff happen and therefore is um, a bully and a vampire and a you know and a and a salesman and tends to step all over people. Mm-hmm. And there's the enabler. There's the guy who fixes scripts and tinkers with them. And he's a yes man and he's a he's a you know development guy mm-hmm. who kind of he's like the the glue that makes things you know, stick together there. Mm -hmm. And that's journeyman. That's the main character. And the two of them have been thrown both in their different ways, completely out of any meaningful context by the collapse of everything that, you know, gave them, gave them a reason for being, there is no Hollywood. There's no multiplex. There's no film industry. Mm -hmm. There's no, there isn't even really money anymore. Mm -hmm. What do, what do you do without money? If you're, if you're in the film industry. So, (laughs) so, they both are kind of stuck in this residual space where it's very unclear what kind of life is available <laughs> to people from the culture industry after this particular kind of catastrophe that I, that I invented. Hmm. Uh, Journeyman, who's a very mild and kind of accommodating type of person, his response is to kind of melt into the background. And um, Todd Baum, the producer, has the opposite <laughs> <laughs> the opposite instinct. He wants to find a way to still, uh, you know, um, produce a spectacular, even if there's no multiplex for it to play in. He wants he wants to be uh, he wants there to be a world where his tyrannical imagination can still loom large. So, do you put? You said you put it in Maine. So, did you do that out of familiarity, or did you want to put these characters into a sort of more uh, pristine, um, real kind of uh, culture, you know, where people are, are more honest about stuff. That's a great description, and I would, I would, I would definitely endorse it. There's something about the groundedness of that environment, mm-hmm. you know. Even now, when you know you can get on the internet, and there is all sorts of distracting stuff that goes on because it's part of America, part of the United States. Mm-hmm. But I feel, in a way, re- Reduced and restored in a very um, a very attractive way to like the life of the senses and of my body when I'm 
hanging out in coastal Maine. There's something also that's, um, you know, it's a cliche, but there's something kind of timeless about uh, remote parts of rural New England where there's still tumbled down stone walls that farmers built and the people who live in the house, you know, the stone wall separates their field from yours, mm. uh, turn out to be the, the great grandchildren of the farmer who pulled those field stones out and built that wall. You know, there's a continuity uh, that's very, um, it's kind of cuts against the grain of American velocity where everything is always changing and being slicked up and transformed and made new. Mm. So yeah, it was a kind of super contrast to uh, other ingredients in my story. So I guess I'm trying to get a feel for uh, more of the this changed world because the the, the book blurb says it's not post-apocalypse, not dystopia, not utopia. Um, it's just everything stops working. So I'm just trying to explore that. You know, is it is everything quieted down? Is everything falling apart? Right. That's the catch, isn't it? Is that it's so localized? The book mm -hmm. and and the experience of the characters is so. Uh, completely reduced to their immediate orbit that one is left to guess, the reader with the characters, left to guess about what's happening in the wider sphere. And, you know, this is something that really interests me. Is our, I, I, I've, I've been curious about this ever since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. I remember I was listening to, to the radio in, in New York City at the uh, what's now the Pacifica Station used to play all these Alan Watts lectures, and I would listen to Alan Watts talk, and he seemed very wise and persuasive and funny to me. And mm -hmm. there was one where he said, "What's the use of learning about distant disasters? You know, stop, stop putting the news on, because mm -hmm. it has nothing to do with you. You can't change it. You can only absorb this anxiety." Now, this is a really weird thought because. We're accustomed increasingly to the sense of global connectedness, which seems in some sense very admirable, you know, that we should feel that we're not okay. It's not all right to be, let's say, well-fed where we live if there are other people elsewhere starving. Mm -hmm. You know, this seems like a kind of global conscience that could drive drive a, a, a transformation, mm -hmm. a revolution in, in, in global consciousness, right? Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, what do we actually experience of this? We mostly just kind of wring our hands at mm -hmm. the reports coming in from afar. Mm -hmm. And that tension is really uncomfortable. So I wanted to flip that discomfort around and look at it from another angle in the book where the characters, they can't even find out whether their own aging parents are still alive anymore. Hmm. I mean, they've, they've really lost any ability. And, and, and it's heightened most particularly for the characters in my book because they're on a peninsula that is itself sort of encircled by this, you know, taciturn, you know, kind of vaguely hostile local power that they call the cordon. Ah, okay. And so they can't even cross out of their own territory voluntarily very easily, let alone get, you know, email or phone calls or newspapers from afar. There is no such thing anymore. So what does that do to your sense of complicity, involvement, responsibility to others? You know, it's just really a puzzle. And the characters are, you know, they're 
at some level, they're sort of morally paralyzed by these concerns. It gives them an appetite and an apprehension to know stuff from afar. And that in turn puts them at the mercy of a liar like Todd Bam, who comes barreling in and says, well, I can tell you what's going on elsewhere. Hmm. The problem is, of course, he's, he's unwilling to be even halfway truthful about it. He may be incapable of being truthful about it. I'm speaking with Jonathan Lethem, author of The Arrest. You can find more information about his work at jonathanlethem.com. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please sign up for my weekly newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com or chrisalvarez.com to keep up with my latest posts. You'll also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at militaryhistorypodcast.com and technologyinspace.com. Now back to the podcast. How do people communicate then in this this uh, setting of yours? Is it just by mouth, by some writing? Yeah, there isn't even a whole lot of writing because the town is small enough that, you know, gossip and, and you know, conversation, fireside conversation gets most everything told, you know. So no one is even putting a lot of effort into what might you might sentimentalize as small town, like a small town newspaper, but it would seem maybe almost like a waste of resources to the folks in the book. I see. Um, which, you know, for people of <laughs> people of the media like like myself and I'm guessing you mm. is kind of uncomfortable. You know, <laughs> I think the the people who are running these towns, the the organic farmers and the very rooted local culture, one of the things that's disconcerting is how admirable and but also maybe how, what ciphers they they can seem. Mm. You know, I mean, it, one of the origins for this book in a way <laughs> Chris is that I, I used to, you know, it's a it's a default joke when you're someone like me who grew up, you know, my father was a painter. I grew up wanting to make art. Mm -hmm. And you kind of, if you grow up in an apocalyptic, with an apocalyptic worldview, as I did growing up, you know, in the 60s and 70s, we still did bomb shelter drills at school. And mm -hmm. I, you know, watched the Twilight Zone and read Philip Kadic novels. So I was mm -hmm. sort of pretty sure that someday civilization would be re reduced to rubble. Mm -hmm. Well, so one of the first things you think is, well, I guess I would be the storyteller. They'll still need people like me, right? <laughs> I mean, I'll be the one who carries forward the, the you know, the, the, the art forms and the, the, the legends and the myths. Mm -hmm. And one of the jokes that this book kind of is pegged on is, actually, you know, after everything collapses, nobody really needs the storyteller. Uh, he's kind of a spare part. And that's journeyman, right? He's just, you know, they, 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 they're just puzzled by what he used to do and, and whether it has any future. And in fact, they just convert him into the, uh, you know, the delivery guy and the, the one who cleans up after the butcher. <laughs> and, you know, it, and it might be even worse than that. It might be that it's not just neutral and useless to be a storyteller, but people in this future might look at myth making and legend and storytelling as like, part of the sickness that they got over yeah. might be part of the problem. Yeah. Hmm. So it sounds, it sounds as though without, um, other forms of communication that, that your, the society you describe has devolved into sort of a, a sort of tyranny in a sort that it almost argues, at least from what I'm hearing is that globalization helps at least 
helps people maybe free themselves from situations. Whereas here, without the communication, you're kind of stuck with whatever is around you. I think that's right. It's a, it's a, it's a exercise in deep locality, the immediacy of where your body happens to be stuck at. You know, a journeyman was only vacationing in Maine when this thing hit. He huh. could have been anywhere, but everything about his present life is determined by the fact it's like musical chairs, right? Hmm. It's where, where, it's where he was the day it happened. And yeah, you lose the points of comparison. So the way society sets up shop right around you is all you're going to know and all you're going to be able to concern yourself with. You can't really do the propositional work of saying, Hey, look, let's maybe what it, maybe we can model ourselves on this other thing. Hmm. There is no more, there isn't really mirroring. Hmm. So even though this is sort of a, a, you know, it's a work of fiction and it's kind of a fantastic setting in a sense. Did you do any research of any sort? Well, all of the books involve some kind of research. In, in many cases, it's a fairly oblique sort of, you know, checking in with other fictions mm -hmm. that I'm aware of that maybe were influential on my deep thinking about this kind of story and that then I need to kind of recontact re them. Mm -hmm. Or others that I've always just wondered what they were about. You know, I, I, I grew up loving a book called Earth Abides and another book called Dr. Blood Money. Uh, the first one by George R. Stewart, the second one by Philip K. Dick. And these are archetypal stories for me anyway, for my imagination about collapsed U.S. civilization. Mm -hmm. Um, and then again, there were others that I just knew existed and I had to kind of seek them out and figure out what they were doing. And, and, you know, and even others that appeared like station 11 by Emily St. John Mandel was published while I was beginning to write this book and think, think about what I was doing. Mm -hmm. And, um, so that's a kind of research in, right. in some very small and sporadic ways. There were things about the farming traditions, you know, the actual physical, necessities performing in that part of Maine that even though they were right in front of my face, I'd never learned anything about, which now mm -hmm. I had to like at least become minimally able to describe. Mm -hmm. And, um, but this was not one of my research intensive books. I wouldn't say that. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like in the course of writing it, maybe not the research, did you discover something about Maine that you didn't realize before? Well, sure. Or I, 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 articulated to myself things that I was feeling about Maine and found found ways to kind of name them. But even deeply specific stuff about the soil, you know, the fact that all the organic farms in that area array themselves along a specific axis, a road, it turns out it's really a difference, even on one part of the peninsula to the next, how fertile the soil is and why it's different. You know, yeah. they're like geological things I learned about Maine. Yeah. But I also, you know, I, I'm not sure it's so much a matter of learning facts as it is just, you know, realizing why my affinities or why my responses to the place are the way they are. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that I grew up a city kid, and if you look at, you know, the very personal books I've written about that locality, about Brooklyn, mm -hmm. I'm obsessed with neighborhoods, right? Like the way you're in one on one block or in one neighborhood or, and you cross this some important boundary. It might be invisible to other people, but everything changes. Hmm. A different ethnicity, a different gang, 
rules this other zone and you're going to feel different when you cross that street. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when I was halfway through this book, it may seem really obvious and like, how could I not have noticed this? But I realized I was experiencing the difference between these very tightly knit small town communities and the way they edge against each other and are, you know, have micro differences, but are, but they're overwhelmingly distinct to the people who live in them. Mm-hmm. But I was translating the same sense of Brooklyn neighborhood culture, mm-hmm. the way you could go from Carroll Gardens to Cobble Hill and have everything change, mm-hmm. was also how I was thinking about the mosaic of little towns on this peninsula. Mm-hmm. You know, if someone were were not from an area and, you know, did, you know, touristing, tourist activities in an area, you might just look at the su- superficial and say, oh, this is all similar. It's, this is what Maine is. But. Like you say, if you're from there, you delve deeper, you can start to see the little details that differentiate um, different regions. Um, yeah. Important details that, and, and again, like you say, like mentioning Brooklyn, like gangs, you know, it's more than just what you can enjoy or see. It's like, how safe is this area? You know, do I fit in? Yeah. What What are the chances that, you know, physical violence is going to underlie someone's approach <laughs> to, to difference or disagreement, you know, and this constant, constant having to measure that, you know, that's where power highs is actually in the, the ability to, you know, oppress another body with violence. And I think in this book, it's a very quiet and, you know, in some ways almost, you know, the, 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 the threats in the book are absurdly understated, but that there, that they exist matters tremendously. Mm-hmm. Would you say there's a lot of, well, what's the sort of the um, the feel of your book? Is it more uh, lighthearted and maybe tends towards introspection, or is there more um, danger? Or um, what's the feel of it? Well, I think it's pretty much a kind of an autumnal pastoral, you know, um, atmosphere, mm-hmm. and that that the the tension that can lurk underneath something like that, the disquiet. Uh, of the, of the, the quiet pastoral was something that I was interested in. And, you know, I, I, it doesn't exactly become violent, but there is a kind of convulsion towards the end of the book. And I was thinking about things like, you know, a Hitchcock film, like, like the trouble with Harry or the birds where there's a prevailing calm and then, and then, you know, menace that erupts. Hmm. Um, this is also, you know, it's a, it's a very archetypal, small town notion. You could also look to something like straw dogs because, you know, one of the, one of the things that intrigues me is the argument that awaits anyone thinking about kind of anarchist restructuring of society is like, Mm -hmm. who's going to deal with the the bad person? Who's going to deal with the sociopath? Right. Um, Do you, do you, you know, do you leave that for some other sociopath? Do you elect a sheriff? Do you have a posse? Do you draw straws? Like what, what is actually done? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, then you're delving into what sort of, basically what sort of government do you want? You know, how much, how much uh, ability to commit violence do you want the government, you know, the government, like you say, the sheriff, right. the, the person in charge, how, how far are they allowed to go? Yeah, absolutely. What would you say? So uh, on this vein of the aesthetic and feel of the book, would you say it has any sort of soundtrack? Can can you imagine <laughs> like a musical feel to it in any way? 
That's a great question. It's funny. I, I, I was asked that the other day hmm. by someone who knows that I actually do almost always make uh, a really definite like soundtrack, you know, a Spotify playlist or a mixtape <laughs> to go with each of my books. And someone says, where's the arrests playlist? <laughs> and I realized it was really, uh, uh, for me, an uncharacteristically unmusical book. And I think some of that is, it's like a, an example of how different I am from journeyman. You know, I mean, they're, you know, they're superficial ways, aging white man who, who makes his living in culture where you could be like, Oh, is journeyman just a version of Lethem? But it's precisely in, in the instance of something like that. He doesn't listen to music and doesn't have favorites and that, that it's hard to imagine him being obsessed with a band or a singer. Um, the way I am, you know, pretty much always kind of obsessed with bands and singers that captures his weird blankness. You know, there's something kind of missing in him. Hmm. And, uh, in this case, it happens to be, I guess, allegorized this, this, this autism or blankness, the kind of, um, you know, way in which he's an unfinished or in a way, not even started personality that, um, that, that, uh, goes together with there not being any soundtrack. So maybe I'm, forgot what his his original career had been but it sounds like he's someone who d disseminates culture but he's a person without culture himself yeah his you know his job specifically is he rewrites other people's movies he's a script doctor hmm. uh that's the colloquial term for it and he's a really good one he can really jump in at the spur of the moment and you know kind of make a dumb lazy hollywood script you know, 15% more appealing, right? So it's not like he has no capacities, but they're not really for originating anything of his own. They're, they're, they're passive. They're kind of, you know, he's a, he's like a, um, a rewrite man. So you did mention some of the, the books, some of the things you enjoyed that sort of inspired this idea. Do you only sort of, uh, partake of that sort of, um, media or is there other stuff? that inspires you? Well, I have a lot of a really kind of crazy chaos of, of appetites for cultural things. I like, mm. you know, I like TV shows and I like art house movies and I listen to ridiculous variety of different kinds of music. I mean, you know, I have favorites and things that I go back to again and again, but I, I am pretty restless and I, I think that my, um, for better or worse, my my restless appetite for novelty is reflected in the books. They're also different one from the next, and even within them, I think they can be seen as reflecting my unwillingness to choose between different modes or genres. You know, I tend to pack different kinds of storytelling ideas and tones together into one space. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure it it may drive some readers crazy, but for better or worse, it's sort of my signature uh, impulse. So what do you think you consume the most or what, not what do you think you, uh, what would you cons consume the most of? Are you more of a reader, a TV, the thing, films? The thing ultimately that I come back to that I center in is the reading of novels. And, hmm. and that's why I write them because it's, it's, you know, as much as I love all these other things, you know, I mean, I play music constantly, but there's also, what am I capable of <laughs> doing? I don't have the musical gift. So novels are my home. 
my home base and reading them is a constant companion. Is there anything out of the ordinary that you do when you write to complete either uh, drafts, interim drafts, or the final uh, work? Uh, yeah. Well, I do have one. I was, I was thinking about this recently because this book is an extreme example. I do like for the final revision to make some radical change that necessitates reworking parts of the book. Sometimes it can almost be kind of arbitrary, but it drives me in the revision process to take a really hard look at every single thing in the book. So often there's some major piece that I'll add at the last minute or some other piece that I'll take out at the last minute or, or I'll reframe things in terms of, you know, um, point of view or in this case, it was a book written in the first person and I transformed it in the final draft into the third person. So just to make sure I understand it, you're saying you purposefully add a dis, uh, sort of a change that doesn't go I like there to be one new, one new feature that, that, that comes in late huh. that I can, that helps me see the book in entirely new light. Hmm. That's interesting. So considering how much writing you've done, when did you start implementing that, um, technique? That's a good question. I'm not sure when that became a conscious uh, strategy. That's that's it's it's been with me long enough now. But it probably wasn't right at the beginning. I mean, early on, every revision seems like a total adventure and a necessity. You're learning, you know. Mm -hmm. You grow so much even between the different drafts of a given project. So every revision is a kind of mountain that you're climbing into the unknown. I think maybe at some point I arrived at this procedure that I've just described to you as a way to restore or reinscribe that kind of intensity, you know, of discovery. Uh, you want always to feel like you're writing, you know, things you've never thought of before. You've never been able to think before. And so it's a way of forcing myself into that space of not knowing. Mm -hmm. So apart from this, are there other things that have changed, say, from your first published work to to this one, things that you've changed in your writing, your approach to writing? Well, I, you know, I've been at it long enough. I almost feel like I've changed and circled back both. You know, you, you, you endlessly are discovering how much your early influences and your early inclinations are still with you and still shape what you're doing. I'm very conscious of it with this book, that this is the kind of book that I wanted to write, that I was trying to write when I was my 20s. I wouldn't have come up with these exact elements and I wouldn't have been capable of putting them together in the way that I have here. But um, I think that, you know, one of the cool things about trying to do so many different things as a writer, which I've really tried to, I've tried to vary as much as possible, is that paradoxically it illuminates how deeply your work is is your own and unified by your obsessions, your sensibilities, your strengths and weaknesses, your your absolute limits. You know, um, you can keep trying to be not yourself, and and you always end up yourself. <laughs> yeah. I'm speaking with Jonathan Lethem, author of The Arrest. You can find more information about his work at jonathanletham.com. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please sign up for my weekly newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com or chrisalvarez.com. 
to keep up with my latest posts. You'll also find written interviews and my social media links there. You can find the links to my other podcasts at militaryhistorypodcast.com and technologyinspace.com. Now back to the podcast. So have you um have you always been a writer or did you do other work that's influenced how or what you write? Well, I started out it's really specific and it's a it's a it's a it's a lucky story. I I um I started out thinking I would be a painter because my dad was one and I grew up in this house where he was in the studio all the time and I absorbed this practice and I thought it was really cool and I watched him do it and I learned to paint and draw almost before I, you know, knew how to read. So it was it seemed really native to me in a way and and I was you know, I kind of inherited his hand-eye coordination. I had a little bit of a gift for for visual art, so it would impress grown-ups very easily, and so I got a lot of positive feedback for it. So it's like, oh, of course I'm going to be one. You know, I was just doing, doing the following in his footsteps sort of thing. And what's interesting about it is how, you know, I had to totally undo that thinking and, and change to become a writer, but in another sense... It, you know, the training, the practice, the habit of going into the studio, all of that was very much nourishing to my writing capacity. It really was, you know, training to be in the arts turns out to be not so different depending on which art it is. And it, I felt, you know, compared to other writers who I would get to know, other other aspiring writers I would get to know in my teens and 20s, who I realized just had no idea what it was to spend time making making art. They wanted to do it, but they didn't have any example nearby that my father's painting had taught me a lot of what I was going to need to know. Mm. Uh, so I, I, uh, I, I was definitely a different thing before I was a writer, but it was a very relevant thing. Huh, interesting. So when you were writing uh, this book, um, were there... Were there parts, did, did you sort of overwrite and have to take stuff out? Or are you more of an, I don't know, underwriter? I, that's probably not the term, but, uh, you know. This, this book shrank a little bit in the re reworking. And some of that had to do with that change I talked about where it went from being a first-person story mm -hmm. told directly by Journeyman to being a third-person story where he was a character. Um, and... He was just kind of a talker. It was a little bit windy. And I realized that while some other books I'd written in the past, I think had thrived on having a chatty, garrulous narrator kind of talking to the reader and making friends with them and digressing a lot. But actually, it was really uh, aggravating in this version of, of the, the arrest to have, have him too much between you and the story. So I... I stripped it down a little bit. Um, but that wasn't a matter of like losing whole scenes or anything. It was almost always more a question of just alterations in the language, the sentences, you know, taking out, taking out, uh, digressions. So, so what, apart from what you just described, you know, taking him out from between the reader and the story, what, what other changes do you feel like that, what, what did it cause or what else did it do when you did that? Well, it was advantageous because we got to look at him and judge him a little more coolly <laughs> instead of having to be inside his head and have him dominating 
your understanding of everything and then having to kind of overthrow him in order to make a critical thought about him, it became much, much easier to see his deficits. Mm -hmm. Now, how about sympathy for the character? Do you lose some sympathy then, it seems like? It's not built in in the same way. But then again, you might actually make it more possible also to sympathize with them because they're not, in a way, they're not um, bullying you. You know, you can you can look at them and say, well, okay, you've got some limits, but you're trying. Whereas if if the character is narrating in the first person, it's sort of like they're they're dominating you, and you're going to have to resist it, unless they're so warm and winning that you don't want to. But that's a very rare first person narrator that you yeah. uh, don't resent sometimes. You know. Did you feel bullied by the character as you were writing the character in first person? Did you feel like the character was taking over in a sense? I wouldn't put it that way, but I never feel that in exactly the way that you've just termed it, which is a kind of a a, a, a common description that I that I find a little bit inexplicable. Hmm. I, I'm exploring with the characters, huh. but I don't ever really have that sensation of them taking over. Okay, okay. Um, so a bit of a whimsical question here, uh, when you were younger, was there any power technology or fictional setting that you yearned for? Wow. Well, that's really interesting because, you know, I, one of the things that this, this book is about in some ways is my realization that a lot of the so-called apocalyptic narratives that interested me were partly fantasies. I thought, you know, on the part of the writer and certainly indulged this feeling in me as a reader that it might be nicer to have some fewer technologies. <laughs> you know, I grew up with a lot of cautionary stories about the future, 1984 and, and, and you know, watching Rod Serling, uh, you know, Rod Serling's The Twilight Zone. Mm -hmm. So I was, um, if anything, I was, I tended to be a kind of a, um, uh, technophobe but um but then again you know i was a i was a great one for vicarious fantasizing and you know i it, it's not an accident that i wrote an autobiographical novel about a kid who who gets actual superpowers you yeah. know i did plenty of vicarious flying dreams and wishes to have the ability to transcend or or you know the, the, the combination of the power to fly away and to fly over uh, or to become, you know, invisible and, and be able to spy on, uh, not be seen. Mm -hmm. You know, all of those things were parts of my coming of age. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it, you mentioned you, you read Philip K. Dick. Have you seen the Do you feel, I don't know how much into his work you you were or are? Do you feel like it's translated well or, or other stuff that you've liked it, that you've seen turn into movies? Well, I, I have a, a kind of a distaff view of adaptation. I don't think it's very interesting to try to make quote unquote faithful adaptations of things. Mm -hmm. Usually it just fizzles. First of all, mm -hmm. it disappoints. It, it never seems to make sense. And it, it, what it tends to do is expose how very different the forms are. You know, if you make, mm -hmm. uh, a film that's as much like a beloved novel as you can, it usually just makes you feel like, oh, well, I guess it's just not filmable or 
novels aren't films. They don't translate into films well. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you take elements and you just throw them into a totally new paradigm and you say, what cinematic thing could I make out of these scraps, these impulses, these you know images uh, or characters, then sometimes you get something really wonderful, which is like a, a another object, another another narrative thing, mm-hmm. which has a kind of a you know DNA in common with the novel, but is just its own thing. And so I love adaptations that are really extremely different. You know, I guess the the hallmark example being Blade Runner from Do Android Stream of Electric Sheep. I mean, it's a novel I love and it's a film I love, mm-hmm. but they're not really that. The, you know, yeah. the tone, the, the emphasis, the atmosphere, even the ideas are not really the same. Yeah. It's, it's really that they just sort of share some sort of like 15% DNA. Yeah. So as a novelist living in L.A., do you, I guess, what's your opinion of, you know, the films that, the stuff that comes out of Hollywood? You know, are you appreciative of, of the spectacle or is it something that turns you off? And Do you prefer the Well, house? if you're in the mood... Right. <laughs> on the right night, yeah. getting into a darkened auditorium with a bunch of other hungry minds and and gobbling up some spectacle—that's that's a great sport. Mm-hmm. Do I think that most of what comes out of Hollywood is worth even glancing at twice? No, it's <laughs> you know like almost every other kind of thing. It's like ninety percent shit. Mm-hmm. That was I think Sturgeon's law. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, 90% of everything is shit. But, um, but that's okay. The 10% is where you want to live, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's books or music or, or movies or, or, or anything else. And the rest, time takes care of the rest. It, mm-hmm. it weeds it out. It makes me wonder sometimes, like, does it take the, the 90% to define what the good 10% is? You know, I guess. There... I'm, I'm sure that there's some, fundamental uh yeah it's like almost like a sea creature that lays you know a thousand eggs and only a hundred of those are gonna like reach reach an actual Mm -hmm. adulthood the others are gonna gonna drift away or get gobbled up by other creatures yeah Uh, did you have any difficulties finishing this book um this one was really uh a dream project. I, I had a lot of joy writing it. Mm-hmm. I felt really centered in it. I felt really like I knew what I wanted it to be. And I was, I was, um, I didn't get interrupted by any significant, you know, life events or, or, uh, you know, uh, irresistible creative temptations. I never got derailed. It was really one that, uh, I, I stayed in all the way and, mm-hmm. and, and that felt good. And you're you're an established writer, so any issues with getting published or? Well, this was a book that had been uh, the back end of a two book deal, as they say in publishing. So it was always had an editor uh, kind of waiting for it, which is a luxury. Mm-hmm. That I, I mean, enjoy. It I mean, frees me when I get in that situation, which I have a couple of times, because mm-hmm. I tend to let myself write the most uh, eccentric and willful kind of books when I think. There's nothing they can do about it. They already, <laughs> they already agreed to publish it. Yeah, so it doesn't have to have a similar theme or genre or anything to the first book. Well, it couldn't. That wouldn't work for me because I always am so uh, 
almost obsessively uh, not repeating myself, you know, one book to the next. Sometimes I circle back around to a mode three or four books later, but I, I, I usually make subsequent books as different from the ones before them as I can. And what's your current writing project? Uh, I am totally just staring at a lot of possibilities, and I've written a couple of short stories, uh, but uh, no, no next novel is yet on my table. So short stories that are, that are being published? Uh, one was already published and another one I think will be, uh, in a, in a month or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so they don't, they don't come that fast anymore. I've, I, I used to write short, short stories at a faster clip. These, these each took a good long time. So hmm. interesting. So where can people find you online? Uh, barely at all. Hmm. Just cause I'm, I'm, I'm so obsessive that I don't let myself get drawn in, uh, because it would probably become all I did. So I have a, a website that I use, I use as a bulletin board. Mm-hmm. And, uh, right now it's, it's, it's basically a really simple bulletin board that just describes that the new book exists and that I'll be, um, doing some zoom events for it. And, and I guess that's a form of finding me online now that's possible. I'll be, mm-hmm. I'll be in, uh, five or six different zoom book tour events in the next few weeks. And what's that website name or that address? Oh, just JonathanLeatham.com. Yeah. Okay. And I'll spell that for listeners. It's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N and then L-E-T-H-E-M.com. You said, right? That's it. All right. So that's all the questions I have. Do you have any uh, final thoughts or words? No, that's wonderful, Chris. Thank you. It was a really good conversation. Good. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, please subscribe and rate it if you can. If you want more fiction and fiction studies ranging from ancient mythology to modern-day sci-fi, fantasy, and horror, please sign up for my weekly newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com or chrisalvarez.com to keep up with my latest posts. On my webpage, you'll also find written interviews and links to my social media accounts on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. I also discuss art, acting, comic books, gaming, and much more. Thanks again, and keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.